If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it and turn to Judges chapter 1. If you want to use the, the pew Bible in front of you or in the under the chair in the pew, if you turn to page 200, that's where we'll be this morning. Now, in having you turn to Judges, and we've never had you turn to Judges before, that may be a hint that we're starting a new series this morning. And really what we're going to do from now until through Thanksgiving, we're going to walk through the book of Judges. Now, I should probably tell you a little bit about the book of Judges, and one of the things you'll find this may lead to a mass exodus. I don't know. We'll find out here in a second. But um, I've read descriptions of Judges as being either the worst book of the Old Testament or the worst book of the Bible. Great, right? It is saturated, quite honestly, with toxic events from genocide to holy, or maybe you'd call it unholy war, to slavery, to the oppression of women, to a whole lot of things. The content of the book, quite honestly, is both disturbing and violent. And at this point, you are wondering, I'll see you at Christmas time, right? Why would we take 15 weeks to walk through this kind of a book? Well, let me... We'll get to the book of Judges in a second, but let me give you one sort of general reason and then four specific reasons why we're going to do a study through this book, why we're going to do this. The general reason is simply this, okay? Judges, being a book of the Bible, is inspired by God, and it's inspired by God in some sense for our good. That is what really the big idea of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 are all about. The Bible is a tool, is a gift. Even the book of Judges is a tool God wants to use to equip you and me for life. Okay, that's the big specific reason, or big general reason why we're doing it. Now, let's get to the specific reasons. But to get there, I want you to think about a couple of things with me. Okay, to kind of get us sort of walking through the Old Testament, coming to the book of Judges, kind of the chronological timeline. Here's the facts. Israel had been rescued by God from Egypt, right? That's the book of Exodus. And then after some disobedience on their part, kind of spending time wandering in the wilderness, God, through Joshua, the book right before Judges, brought them into the promised land. And you think about it, they've been waiting for this for so long, and it's like they're going into the promised land, and maybe to use an analogy, it's like the first day of school. And it's like, it's going to be great. Well, it should have been great, but it wasn't great. Okay, they went with this anticipation, it's going to be great, but it wasn't great. Which tells us something. We need to understand something that overarches judges, overarches in one sense the Bible, and if it overarches the whole Bible, then it overarches our lives, and it's this simple truth. There is a very real spiritual battle going on all around us. Even if, even if you are a follower of Jesus, and what we mean by a follower of Jesus, even if you are someone who has repented of his or her sin and trusted the Lord Jesus alone as your Savior, even if that's true of you, we need to understand for all of us that spiritual decline is a huge possibility in every single one of our lives. We need to realize that because there's a spiritual battle. We need to acknowledge that. What does that spiritual battle look like? 
Well, if you were to look at the very end of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, many commentators will tell you that's kind of the theme of the book of Judges. The people had basically, as they'd been in the promised land, they had kind of adopted this attitude of, hey, I can do what I want, when I want, because I know what's best, what's right in my eyes. I'm going to do what I want to do. But I need to tell you, based on the whole story of the Bible, that is not a life of freedom. That is not the life of freedom that God gives us that Paul proclaimed and told us about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. That's not the freedom God wants for us. But that is exactly where the spiritual battle of life wants to take us. It doesn't want to take us to the freedom we have in Jesus. It wants to take us to Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. Please understand, God doesn't want us in Judges 21, 25. He has something so much better for us. Now, with that in mind, now I'm going to give you the four specific reasons we're doing this series. Reason number one is this. Knowing there is that spiritual battle, it is to equip us to live and enjoy the freedom that God offers us in Christ. We're going to be pulled, but let's be pulled towards the freedom we have in Christ. Reason number two we're doing this. Through the decline and failure of Israel, we're going to see a lot of it. Even through that, we want to see God's beauty and we want to see the beauty that God offers us in his love. We want to see that fullness. Reason three, we're doing this. So that our lives will be immersed in God's grace and mercy and not our sin. Our lives are in his grace and mercy, not our sin. And then reason number four, we're doing this. So that we walk with the Savior we really walk with him through the battle of life instead of walking with and towards self-destruction. Okay, that's why we're doing this series. Now, set the scene for the entire book of Joshua. Sorry, this is gonna be hard because Joshua impacts judges and their next door neighbors and their J words. So if it doesn't make sense, just ask me later and hopefully we'll clarify, but I'll get it right. Set the scene for the whole book of Judges. So to set the scene for the whole book of Judges, you've got to look at the first few words of Judges chapter 1. Okay? Judges chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. After the death of Joshua. Now, the book of Joshua started with Moses dying. Now, in the same way, Judges starts with Joshua dying. Now, the reason that's laid out, the reason I want to draw your attention to is because that really raises the question. In the book of Joshua, the question was, if Moses has died, now what? He'd been the great leader. Now what do we do? Same thing. Joshua had been the next leader. Now what do we do? He's dead. What now? How do we go from here? Well, one of the things we need to understand, one of the things about the amazingness and incredibleness of God is God knew all of this was happening. So he had literally used Joshua in Joshua 23 to give the people marching orders. This is how you live after I'm gone, in essence. Joshua 23, Joshua lays out six truths. He was directed by God to tell the people six truths to shape their lives so they know how to live once he was gone. In essence, this is how you engage life. 
what are those truths? Truth number one is this. Joshua told the people, God fought for you, so God fought for Israel, and God fights for Israel. That's the first three verses of Joshua 23. That's the truth they said you need to know. Second truth, the continued progress in the mission of God. Okay, they were to keep taking over the promised land. To do that, to continue in God's mission involved a partnership with God. So truth one and truth two really were sort of perspectives they were to come at life. God fights for us. We need to participate with God. Now, from those two, then God said, hey, let me add some habits. So truth three, four, and five are habits they needed to form. So Joshua will tell them, hey, habit, which, habit one, which is really truth three, keep obeying God. So Joshua 23, verses six and seven, keep obeying God. Then truth number four, cling to God. So what verses 8 to 10 were about. Cling to God. If you're going to really engage life, cling to God. And then truth five was love God. Verses 11 to 13 of Joshua 23. Love God. So cling to God, love God. Do that. Why? Well, because God fights for us and... We don't need to participate with him. And then truth number 11, kind of maybe making a sandwich, bringing a little more perspective. Truth number six from Joshua 23 would be this. God's faithful. God will do what God says he'll do. And if we're going to engage life when Joshua's gone, when the great leader is gone, here's how we do it. We take those six truths. In essence, those are the marching orders from God. God had laid out those marching orders, and the big question became, as the book of Judges starts, is are they going to follow those orders? Are they going to follow those orders? Now, I want to tie that back to us. I want to help us make a connection from that to our lives. And how I want to do it is I want you to think about the longest series I ever did here was the Gospel of Mark. We started it three years ago in the fall of 2020. And we finished it just before Christmas in 2022. And we did that, and we did that series in chunks, and we took a long time to do it because we wanted to see that Jesus was calling us to be disciples and how he was asking us as disciples to make disciples. And a key verse in that was Mark chapter 1, verse 17. That verse reads this way. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. That, in essence, was Jesus laying out, here's the orders. Here's how you should live. You should be making disciples, and you do it by connecting people, equipping people, and sending people. So let me ask the question. Israel was to follow certain orders. Are you and I going to follow the orders of the true king? Are we going to connect? Are we going to equip? Are we going to send? Are we going to do those things? Now, let's jump in, really, to the whole book of Judges, not the whole book of Judges, but into the very start of Judges 1. In a lot of ways, Judges 1, they, they seem to start off well. Okay, the book starts off in a good sense, but verses 1 to 4. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. 
And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Basic. Now, those verses, really, it's a great start. Israel, they're, they're coming into the land, and so they're turning and asking God, what should we do? They're listening to him. They're kind of taking steps to follow God's direction. They're working together. I mean, it looks really good. I mean, verse 2, in essence, is highlighting, and I want you to see verse 2. Verse 2 is highlighting that Judah is the one to take the first step towards claiming the promise God had made. God said, I've given you the land, and now they're starting to claim it. Now, there's a whole lot more we need to cover as we go through Joshua 1, but I want us to see that. See, if you and I are going to really experience the freedom that God offers us in Jesus, they were claiming the promises God made. So let me ask you, are you claiming the promises God has made. See, if we're going to experience the freedom that God has for us, it starts there. Are you and I claiming the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that question, are you and I embracing God's will? Are you and I embracing God's will? Why am I pointing that out? Why am I drawing attention to that right here so soon? Because, folks, a great start a great start, which is what seems to be happening, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, does not guarantee that things will keep going great. The wheels very quickly came off for Israel, very quickly. Verse 5 to verse 7, they read this way. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, and they but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and its, his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps from under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, it doesn't take long to get into the violent and cruel stuff in the book of Judges, okay? Just so you know, cutting off thumbs and big toes was fairly common in the ancient world. Now, that's not why we're reading it. That's not why we're drawing attention to it. The honest truth is they're talking about cutting off thumbs and big toes. It was actually a hint that Judah was already starting to not obey God. They were already starting to turn away from God. See, part of their marching orders had also been given to them, not only by Joshua, but also by Moses in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17, it says this. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded God had given clear direction. All the Canaanites, because of their sin, all of them were to be killed. But Judah's drifting from that. We're only six verses in, and they're starting to do this thing. They're planting a seed of partial obedience that is going to grow into 
a tree. And when I say partial obedience, that basically is disobedience. Those are equivalent terms. So when you plant the seed of partial obedience, you are going to grow a tree, and this tree is going to be huge by the time we finish the book of Judges because they started in this moment turning away from God. Please do not miss the big idea. Experiencing freedom comes when we obey God. Experience freedom, what God intends for us to know, comes when we obey. When we disobey, when we do partial obedience, that brings failure. Now, by failure, I am not saying that everything in life will go bad in an instant, that everything is a complete disaster. That's not what I'm saying. But I think the book of Judges would kind of picture failure as putting sin into your morning coffee instead of God's grace and mercy. And that's what Judah and the nation was starting to do. Which means another important question I think we need to ask our souls Are we okay? Are you okay with a life of partial obedience? Now, thankfully, not all of chapter one is depressing and them coming off the rails. There's actually going to be a picture now of freedom, a picture of what happens when you obey God. What does it look like? Looking at verse 10, they they had a victory, another victory and a more complete victory. So verse 10 says this. And Judah went up against the Canaanites who live in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated, let me just love all the names. Shisha and Haman, or Amen and Talmi. Now, those names, whether you remember them or not, but those names from verse 10 should take us back to the 12 spies and the story in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. You see, the places listed in, chapter, in verse 10 and the names literally go back there. In fact, the three names, the three guys that are named there were the giants that intimidated and scared the people. If you look at Numbers chapter 13, verses 22, 32, and 33, you'll see the same names, and you'll see the people were terrified. They were scared of those giants to the extent they literally disobeyed God because of fear, because of those giants. And yet what happens right here? What's happening here? They have victory. The giants that were big and scary all of a sudden are defeated. God can and does bring victory. That was a huge gift. Look what God has done for them. And guess what? Judah, or the book of Judges, actually says, hey, let's see what victory looks like. Let's see what this kind of freedom is. So I'm going to have you skip down to verses 12 to 15. And Caleb said, this is Caleb, one of the 12 spies, said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And, and Othniel, the son of Kenza, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, well, what do you want? And she said to him, hey, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now, think about this for a second. Caleb, 
at this point in history, Caleb was the only spy from Numbers 13 still alive. He was the only one. He had been trusting and was trusting that God would bring victory. And God does. And out of that victory, out of seeing that victory, then Caleb wants to be a conduit of God's blessing. He's experiencing God's goodness. He wants to share it. So he blesses his daughter. Now, I realize, at least from my standpoint, it feels like we were going really, really fast. Okay? In some ways, I'd like this 15 weeks. I'd like to slow it down, and I'd like to, like, take 30 weeks in Judges. But I wasn't sure if you'd show up for 15 weeks, yet alone 30 weeks. So, you know. But don't miss an implication out of Caleb's life in this moment. If, like Caleb... We trust God and his promises. We will experience victory and blessing in God's timing. Now, please understand, Caleb was trusting God in Numbers 13. But because of the disobedience of 10 spies, the victory and blessing of God was kind of put on the pause button. And Caleb had to wait more than 40 years But Caleb waited, and Caleb saw and experienced the victory and blessing of God. Folks, if you and I will trust God and his promises, we can see his victory. We can see his blessing. And if you get nothing else out of this morning, please remember that. Please remember, if you trust God and his promises, you will see his blessing and his victory in his time. Now, why do I say you need to remember that? Why do I say that's the big thing to get this morning? Because the people of Israel forgot very quickly how critical it is to trust God and trust his promises. Look down at verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron, chariots of iron. Now, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, Judah had been experiencing victory, kind of taking things up in the rough country, in the hill country. They come down on the plains, and all of a sudden there's these chariots, and they're like, whoa, can't do this. Now, to be fair, chariots of iron would have been a formidable foe. Okay, it would have been like the tanks of the day. Kind of like the giants were a formidable foe, so were the chariots. But here's the thing. God was still with them. I mean, verse 19 makes it very clear. God's with them. But it kind of seems like God was with them beating the giants, but now that they're on the plains, it's like they're not really paying attention to God. Yeah, he's there, but it's kind of like they're ignoring him. They're putting him off to the side. They're not really looking to him anymore. Folks, the success in Hebron in the hill country against the giants, it's not because giants are easier to defeat than chariots of iron. Success in the spiritual battle of life depends on us trusting in the great God. When we trust in him, we can have it, regardless of what the foe is against us. 
But when we fear or trust something other than God, we will not drive out the chariots of the enemy of our souls. Sadly, this picture of failure is going to keep coming. Look at verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. Now, we've been in the southern part of the promised land with Judah. Now we're going north with Joseph, would be Manasseh and Ephraim. But notice God's still with the people. He's present. He's there. He's wanting to partner with them. Now, the sons of Joshua, or jo sorry, Joseph came up with this plan, and it was kind of a cool military plan, and so they kind of get a guy from Bethel to kind of tell them some things, and they're going to utilize that. And it's like, oh, this sounds good. Sounds like they're doing things, but uh, they didn't exactly do that destruction thing they were supposed to do. Look at verses 25 and 26. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. Well, it sounds like they're doing this. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. There's a measure to which they were kind of obeying because there was kind of a defeat of the enemy, but they also let the enemy relocate and replant. It was another partial attempt at obeying. Yet God's with them. But they're not doing what God's calling them to do. And the honest truth is the rest of the chapter just kind of repeats this pattern again and again and again and again and again. Please don't miss the point. Partial obedience is not a life of freedom. Now, to be clear, partial obedience is going to produce something. It's always going to produce something, but it's not going to produce the freedom we need from Christ. Now, I want you to think about that, but I also need you to step back and think about judges in a broader sense. God's asking them to remove these people. They're not removing them. What's the issue? Well, if Israel's going to be the holy people God's calling them to be, it's not going to happen in partial obedience. You and I are not going to be the people God is calling us to be if we're living a life of partial obedience. Now, for Israel, in their context, God's saying get rid of these people. Why? Because the people they lived around mattered. God had already told them that. Whom they lived among really would mark their lives. Furthering the story, Judges chapter, 30, Judges chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alav or of Aksib or of Helva or of Ofhik. Don't you just love these names? Or of Rahav. The problem is, I have English and Hebrew words going on in my head, and I'm like, I have trouble pronouncing either one. So there's a lot of places there, okay? Get the point. Continue on. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. You say, why does the writer of Judges, why is this pointed out? Why, why draw attention to their failures? 
want you to read and hear with me all of Deuteronomy chapter 20. We've already read verse 16 and 17. We're going to read them again and then verse 18. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? Notice this, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Asher's partial obedience was purchasing an all-expense-paid trip to trouble. They were inviting evil to come live with them. Now, I don't want you to miss the big idea, okay? Living in freedom is going to require us to purge stuff from our lives that wants to hold us in bondage. If you're going to live in freedom, there are things you and I need to purge from our lives so we're not held in bondage, so we're not trapped there anymore. Now, if we're going to apply Judges 1, 31 and 32, and Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18 to our lives, I think we need to consider what Romans 8, 13 says. Okay, that verse says this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. You'll purge that stuff. By the Spirit's power, you'll live. Now, I need you to hear me clearly, and I stick to my notes very closely at this point, okay? This idea that there is no king is kind of a lie. There really is one of two kings in your life. You can either choose to follow the true king, the triune God, or you can follow your flesh. That's what Romans 8, 13 is telling us. It's one of two choices, who you're going to follow. Now, when we talk about the flesh, we're talking about that bent inside us that kind of is anti-God or against God. It's a bent that desires and is fed by things like partial obedience. It's where the spiritual battle wants to take us to fill that and develop that. And what we need to understand, folks, if we let the desires of the flesh hang around or to live among us, to borrow from the words of Judges 1. If we let that hang around our lives, we are inviting self-destruction to sit on our couches, eat at our tables, and sleep in our beds. That's the point. That's the issue. If you and I are going to experience the freedom of God, we have got to put some stuff to death. We have got to get rid of some stuff. which means I think all of us need to take some time, maybe it's even this afternoon, to ask God the question, God, what in my life, what habits, what activities, what daydreams, what needs to be purged from my life so that I'm not held in bondage to it, so that I... Don't hang on to what needs to be driven out. Maybe a fair question to ask at this point is, should you be concerned about Judges 1? Should you? Well, as you think through your answer, should I really care about this chapter of the Bible? Please consider this. 
You can make choices and decisions, but every choice and decision you make comes with a consequence. As you think about that, look at Judges chapter 2, the very first words of verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, two things I want you to observe in those words. First is this. It is highly likely when it talks about the angel of the Lord in that verse, it is referring to a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. That means Jesus thinks what's happened so far really is a big issue. Second thing, when it talks about Gilgal there, that's a reminder. Gilgal is the place when Joshua in Joshua chapter 4 took the people across the flooded Jordan River. You know, when the Jordan River parted and they crossed on dry land, they picked up 12 stones, and they took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, and they built a monument. They built an altar. They built something there. Why? They built it to remind them of what God had done in bringing them into the promised land, all of God's goodness, to remind them, look what God has done, and in seeing that for generations after that, Realizing if God has done this, then you and I should. We should long to live in obedience to God. We should live in fear of God. In essence, that memorial, that taking us back to Gilgal, was saying, God cares for us. God does amazing things. God had made a promise, and he delivered on it. And that's huge to remember. We need to remember that. Why? Look at all of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? I said, we need to remember why. Because Israel forgot. And their partial obedience, they made the decision to partially obey, and that created consequences. Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, and they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. Now let me be clear. God's not being a big meanie at this point. He had told them through Joshua in Joshua 23 exactly what would happen if they made the choice and decision to walk away from God. God laid out for them in advance, here are the consequences of you partially obeying. Joshua chapter 23, verses 11 to 13. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among them and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off from this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Please do not miss the point, the implication, the big idea. When you cling to something other than God, when you make the choice to do that, you're walking away from God. And there's consequences to that, consequences that we'll experience. Now, I get it that that's heavy, 
And I think it needs to be heavy. But that's not the end of the story. See, God shares the message of Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, because God cares. God wants us to know freedom, not destruction. He's inviting us to something so much better. And the reality is God shared those things, shared those hard words, because verse 1 of Judges 2 would say, he's committed to us. He came, stepped in, inviting us. He's committed to us. Which then raises the question, if God's committed to his promises, are we committed to God and God's promises? Do we want to enjoy the freedom that God offers us in Jesus? Judges chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 read, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, at this point, it kind of seems like the people are getting the point. It seems like they're, they're kind of pointed in the right direction. It's kind of like they're kind of repenting, but the reality is they were headed towards repenting, but they didn't really repent. You and I could be heading towards repenting and not really repent. So when we talk about repenting, what are we talking about? We're talking about a change in our heart, mind, in our soul, the control center of our lives. A change there that makes us want to change our actions. It's a, we're going to do this differently, and I long to live a different life. Repenting is, that's what it's saying. Now, please, the point of this morning isn't to scold anybody for their sin. The point of today is really to say, we need to cry in repentance to God. It's a cry of repentance. You see, Judges 1 paints a picture of partial discipleship and, and half-hearted discipleship. That's not a picture that will ever lead to freedom. It's not. God wants us to know by sharing with us from Judges 1, he wants us to know our lives don't have to be Judges 1. They can be very different. So please ask yourself, where in your life do you need to repent to a fuller obedience and a deeper discipleship? Where are you kind of saying, well, God's with me, but I'm keeping him over here, and I'm not really going to do what he wants me to do? Where do you need to deal with God today? See, here's the incredible good news of the gospel. God the Father sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to make freedom possible for you. Which makes me ask the question, have you received the gift of the freedom he's given you? Which is another way of saying, have you trusted the Lord Jesus alone as your Savior? Judges 1 saying, go there. Make that choice. The gospel isn't just about starting, because that is a starting thing. The good news of the gospel also is that God the Father and God the Son then send God the Holy Spirit to empower the lives of his followers to live a life of freedom. Which makes me ask the question, are you following the true king and what's right in his eyes? Or are you following yourself? You can make either decision. 
That is your right. But the consequences of choosing God is freedom. The consequences of following anything else is failure. Let's pray. Father, you know that we need you. You know there is a battle around us. And you know there are so many things that seem right in our eyes. And it is so easy for us to want to go there. Lord, we need you. You know that life can look so great. But spiritual decline can enter our souls so quickly. And the wheels can come off. But Lord, what's amazing to me is you care for us enough that even when our wheels are coming off, you are extending a hand to us. You are bringing your help. And I pray we would cherish it and cling to it. Father, I pray now you would touch us and make us do the work in our souls we need to do. Face things. Repent of things. Want to purge things so that we could experience the freedom you're inviting us to. May we know that you're here and may we follow you, the one who gives freedom and life. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you give us. May we embrace it and delight in it for your glory. In the very precious name of the Savior we pray. Amen.